I know that you're all enjoying one another's company, but we're going to dig into Isaiah. What a gorgeous day. God has been kind to give us just uh, one more sweet day to be able to enjoy bringing the, the whole church family together for one service. We're always thankful to do this, and probably the next time will be next spring at some point, but this is a delight. About 80% of Americans, latest polling from Pew and Gallup, about 80% say they believe in God. Now, that's sort of a generic polling because when they get pressed about it, about a quarter of them say that their belief in God would be in some kind of spiritual force or higher power. And of those who say they believe in God, just a little over half say that they believe in the God has described in the Bible. And only about 40% of those who believe in God actually believe in a God who punishes sinners. By the way, I, if you're in the back and you're saying, we can't see you, short guy, that's because I'm trying to avoid the sun. That's why I'm down here. Sorry, you're just going to have to take the voice without the appearance if you can't see me. But those numbers um, just decline. The more you get younger, under 30, those numbers decline even more so in terms of belief in God, belief in God of the Bible. Whether we're talking about Isaiah's day, 700 BC, or we're looking at our day, unredeemed sinners' hearts move in the same direction. The desire is for a God of their own design, one who can be conformed to my own desires, uh, one who will fit my circumstances. I, ideally one, and, and the surveys show this as well, ideally he's one who protects me from harm, that he's there when I get in trouble, and who provides some level of blessing of prosperity. In other words, I want a God who's just supernatural enough to locate my keys when I can't find them, but not so supernatural that I have to feel accountable to him, that I have to be under his rule. That really is what it comes down to, I think. For many people, the, the choke point, of course, is the idea of an eternal God, a God who pre-exists creation and man, who then makes me, breathes life into me, who establishes his law and says, this is what is right and wrong by my definition, and then holds me accountable to that and actually has the, the veracity, if you will, to, to judge me and punish me for disobeying him. When Israel looked at the other nations around it, it saw gods, all of these other nations had them, but, but they, they were smaller gods. They had limited job descriptions. They, they had unique powers for certain capacities, but they weren't this overwhelming God. And so if you gave them a sacrifice, then they could help you win a war, help you have babies, help you grow crops, you know, just gods who would do specific things, but not, not be overarching sort of gods, which is why when we come to this part of Isaiah that we've been in here and mostly in the, the, the 40s and chapter 41, 40 really on through 45 where we'll be today, we've seen the God of the universe summon the Jewish people and, and their idols into his courtroom to say, is this really what you believe? Is this what you've adopted? Is this what you've embraced? Because I'm, I want you to see me versus them. I want you to understand exactly who I am because it seems like all that came before, all that Moses gave in the Pentateuch, you've somehow lost sight of as to who I am. And so he's called them to settle this matter once and for all. Can, can you describe God? Can you define him? Are you trying to make your own God? Are you trying to write your own job description for him? Are you worshiping God and yet setting boundaries and saying, 
only this much really is, is what you should expect of me, God. I can only give you this much. Have you made a God who meets your desires but is not your master? Those are fundamentally the same basic issues as they are today. 80% of Americans say, yep, we believe in God, and yet the numbers and the culture repeatedly show us that it's a God that as long as they can define it, as long as they can say, well, it's a he or a she or a something, but it's, it's what I conceive of what God to be doing all that I want that God to do and no more. And so throughout chapters 41 to 45 of Isaiah, there's this phrase that is repeated over and over again. We're not gonna walk through in, in terms of reading every verse in these chapters. We're gonna go back to kind of where we were earlier in Isaiah, sort of surveying slightly larger sections, but, but there's this phrase that stands out 15 times in five chapters, says the same thing and a couple times even a, a variation on it in addition to those 15. And the phrase in the Hebrew is simply, I, Yahweh. I, Yahweh, our English translations typically translated as I am the Lord. It is these self-identifying statements of God. Now think about that. If you're having a conversation with someone and say it's a, a 20 minute or so conversation and 20 or 15 times in the course of that conversation, they are identifying themselves. They are saying, I, I dug. A couple minutes later, I dug. You'd, you'd think that was odd. God is doing this purposefully because he has called them into his courtroom and he is wanting them to see that you, you have all of these conceptions of deity. I, Yahweh, this is what I am. Let there be no mistake that when I make these statements that I am identifying myself. And so you've got 15 times where he says this. And then on top of that, all of these me and I statements that fill this section. Listen to me. I have chosen you. I am with you. I am the one who helps you. I will send my chosen servant. I will open rivers and turn deserts into pools. I will lay waste mountains and hills. I created for my glory. I declared, saved, and proclaimed. I will blot out all of your transgressions. And, and the list just goes on and on. This portion of Isaiah is in one sense very much autobiographical. It is God saying to a people who seem to have lost sight of who he is and have adopted definitions of God's around them, he is saying, I, Yahweh, am this. Stop trying to, to fit me into your box. Stop trying to say, this is what we want God to be. Stop trying to redefine God. I am telling you who I am. And he says why, Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. That's the, the I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. My glory, it belongs to me, the honor and, and the worship and the praise. A little later, God describing how he'll deliver his people from Babylon, Isaiah 43, 7, Says everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. I, Yahweh, I did this, and it is to spread my fame, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So he summons the, everyone into his court to unmistakably declare there is only one transcendent. God over all creation, and he is revealing himself to his people. There is one ultimate reality 
who cannot be controlled or manipulated. All of us are susceptible to being controlled or manipulated in some way. God is not. There is only one who is worthy of glory. Now, you can choose to reject him, but you can't change the terms of things. You cannot redefine him. You you cannot try to, to make him fit your description. This, the, the, the definition of God as he's presenting himself, this is not a choose your own adventure sort of thing that, that you know, our culture is used to today. Well, I'll take a little bit of this and then I'll turn this way and then I'll do that. And, and, and this, is, this is how I'll concoct the deity that I worship. Because he is declaring beyond any doubt, I, Yahweh, am this. I am Lord God. I am creator. And we have to get this right we have to get this right, not just because it's good theology and, and, and we believe we hold the good theology, but because we are surrounded by a culture that has this wrong and, and, and wants it redefined and demands that it be redefined over and over again. And so this morning, I just want to walk through several verses throughout 41 through 45. Look at how God says, I, Yahweh, how he identifies himself. I'm just going to put them under three headings. You've got them there in your notes, creation, calamity, and calling. God defining himself in terms of creation, calamity, and calling. He will declare himself. Chapter 43, he's looking toward the exile. You can, you can scroll to 43 if you want. He's, he's talking about the exile of the people of Judah into Babylon. They have sinned. They have rebelled. Because of that, they are going to be punished. This is still future. This is still prophecy at the time of Isaiah. They will be carried off into captivity in Babylon, but God will not abandon them there. In the, in, in the context of speaking of that, that, that captivity, he speaks of a promise of deliverance. Isaiah 43 verses 5 through 7. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. To the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. This verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. I want to come back to the deliverance part of that later, but it's that creation part. They were formed by me. I made them. Back in Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. All the earth is the work of God's hands, the one who preceded and made humanity. He is the eternal, tireless creator. Creation itself is wearing out. It is deteriorating. We, we watch the grass come and go, and, and, and if left to its own, it, it becomes overwhelmed with, with weeds because creation is deteriorating. God is, is not subject to the laws of thermodynamics that the, the scientists tell us about how the, 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 the energy is, is gradually, it's, it's in decline. God creates energy, but he never declines. He's never one bit less than what he was when he made the earth. He's never one bit less than he has been for all of eternity, and he never will decrease. He is the creator. In Isaiah 45, he's confronting those who oppose him. In Isaiah 45, 12, I made the earth, created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. God's speaking in this chapter of his right to do as he pleases because of who he is. 
Part of I, Yahweh, is the right to proclaim and, and to do his will. And he's saying there, look at creation. I didn't ask for help. I didn't seek counsel when it came to creation. I didn't stop and go, ah, I'm, I'm, I'm at a crossroads here on day three and I don't know what to do on day four. I didn't ask because I don't need my, my wisdom, my understanding is unsearchable. I stretched all of this out. I simply did it. I stretched out the heavens. What a magnificent statement. Isaiah 45, 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I, Yahweh, I am the Lord. There's nothing to compare to me. You look at creation and it testifies to the singularity of God. There is one unique, immutable, uncorruptible being. It is the creator. I, Yahweh, did this. Back in Isaiah 40, 25, he says, To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, he's, calling about the, the, he's talking about the stars, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The heavens and the stars were just as fascinating to people 3,000 years ago as they are to us today, except they, they knew a little bit less about it. And so the, the Babylonians, uh, the, the people of the ancient Near East, the Canaanites, often looked at the stars and imagined that those stars could be like gods. There were, there were different ones that were identified to be as gods. And Yahweh is saying, the stars are not gods. I alone am self-existent. I stretched out the heavens. I put those stars in place and I named those stars. There, there's no comparing me to them. I am the sovereign ruler and those stars depend on me for their existence. They display my glory. Over and over, God says, as you look into creation, especially as you look into human beings, you are peering into the, the fact that there is only one creator. This is not random. This is what he has done. This part is, is clear. We know this. We know from Romans 1 that the unbelieving world literally has to take the truth about creation and press it down, suppress it, because they, they cannot somehow handle the fact that that this is all orderly and, and the universe has been stretched out in this way. And so they suppress the truth about the creator. But Isaiah declares, I, Yahweh, not only in connection with creation, but then with something else that's a little harder for us, calamity. I'm in Isaiah 45 again. Isaiah 45, and I'm going to read verses 5 through 7. Isaiah 45, 5 through 7 starts with another I, Yahweh statement. I am the Lord. There is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. And we'll see who he's talking about here a little bit later. I equip you that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. There's, there's the statement that, that should give us a little bit of pause. I make well-being and I create calamity. I, Yahweh, do this. I am the Lord. The CSB says, I make success and create disaster. The word is the word for bad. 
It can be evil, it can be disaster, it can be calamity. One, one commentator writes this, if any question yet remained about the degree of uniqueness and exclusivity that Isaiah was claiming for God, this verse should lay it to rest. Because he's saying, when it comes to nature, think of the two most opposite things you can think of, light and dark. I've got them and I've got everything in between. When it comes to history, think of everything you can think of, that which is good and that which is bad, I rule over all of it. I am sovereign over all of it. And, and, and so that's where this create calamity statement comes in, which presents a challenge. Because there are those who look at this and go, God, God cannot create calamity. That, that doesn't seem right. That must mean something different. And, 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 and let me just suggest to you the alternative that some will go to, even some well-intended Christians will argue because they, they don't want to touch this create calamity stuff and they don't want to attribute it to God. And the alternative is that there are things that happen in God's universe over which he somehow reigns back his control. There are times when things happen that God sort of steps back and they are not in his control. There are accidents and tragedies and losses and disasters that God grieves and he certainly hates more than we do, we would agree on that, but, but God must somehow either limit his power or his knowledge or some combination of both for these things to happen because otherwise they couldn't possibly because God must not be able to stop them. The, the, the problem we know with any attempt like that is that this isn't a singular sort of statement, this create calamity. This isn't the only place we see this in scripture. Amos 3.6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Ah, that's a, that's a tough statement. The, the one we know best is Joseph at the end of Genesis, right? In, in Genesis 50 verse 20, you intended evil. All the calamity that came to Joseph's life, the throwing him in a pit and selling him as a slave and, and then being thrown in jail and left in jail and, and unjustly put in jail and all that goes on. And Joseph goes, I understand you, you meant evil. You meant bad. Same word here as calamity. You meant calamity for me. You meant evil. God intended it for good. Are you saying, Joseph, that God was sovereign in, in all of that, that his providence was at work? Isaiah 45, 7 is not saying that God creates evil. This Hebrew word for calamity has this range of meaning, but if you look at it in its context, he says he creates well-being, makes well-being is what it says in our ESV, which is shalom, goodness, um, things being at peace, things being right and healthy. And what he's saying is that the God who makes that, that there are also things, there, there are things that are good and right and healthy, and there are also terrible moments in history. There are hurricanes and famines and shootings and disease, and God is not the author of evil, evil. And yet, as Job says to his wife, shall we receive what is good from God and not that which is bad or adversity, as the CSB says. We can't explain calamity away by saying, oh, loving God has good intentions, but somehow he loses his power in some of these situations such that evil takes place and it must defeat him. We know God does turn people over to debased minds to do as they please. We know that God does ordain that men do things that are evil and yet ultimately serve his purposes. 
God is working out his will through the circumstances in ways we can't explain and often using suffering to conform us to his image. And so what we at some point have to know as believers in Jesus Christ is we, we trust this God and we trust his ways and we trust his purposes and we rest in him all the more and know that it is only this God who can help us in those circumstances, who can redeem calamity, who can bring something purposeful out of that which seems disastrous. And so the, the very instance that's in question here is the destruction that is coming of Jerusalem, the, the slaughter of many of the Jewish people, the dragging of the rest into captivity into Babylon, and their exile there. And, and, and what he's saying to them ahead of time as the one who, who even makes calamity is, is don't, don't for a moment think that somehow I've lost control when this takes place. When the Babylonians come, don't you stop and think, God, he must, have, he must have stepped back from his throne. He can't be ruling right now. God is saying, this is still carrying out my purposes. If evil exists, it is because I have allowed it. And yet, he also loves and helps his people in the midst of calamity. That's the redeeming piece of this for us who trust in Jesus Christ, who know that there is still God's purpose at work. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you, help you, uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will sustain you. Isaiah 44.2, he's speaking to his servant Israel. And, and remember Isaiah 44, we talked a little bit about last week. It introduces the, the servant, the coming servant. But as I said to you last week, there's all of these different mentions of servant. You come to later in 44 and suddenly there's this blind and deaf servant. He's talking uh, uh, now about Israel again as a servant. And in Isaiah 44.2, he's talking about this often failing servant. And he says again, thus says the Lord who made you who formed you from the womb and will help you. The one who purposes and ordains, who creates, who also brings calamity to bear as part of his sovereignty is the one who promises to help. And he is the one who redeems. Isaiah 45, eight says, shower, O heavens from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them to both sprout. I, the Lord have created it. That verse, shower, O heavens from above, rain down righteousness, that's the one that follows the, the verse that says, I make well-being and I create calamity. It is the reminder that the same sovereign God who ordains calamity also rains down righteousness. He is a God whose ultimate purpose is to bring glory to himself through the redemption of his people and the helping of his people, and his goodness will reign. He will prevail whether it's the Babylonians and Assyrians of Isaiah's day or those who commit violence in our day, none of them transgress boundaries established by Yahweh. I, the Lord, I establish this, and God will ultimately conquer evil and wipe it away. Creation, calamity, and then the last one is calling. So I mentioned Isaiah 45. It's talking about the Jewish people being taken into captivity in Babylon. He writes this, remember this is from Isaiah, 150 years, roughly, before what he's talking about takes place. 130 years, if you will, even to the, the captivity, but then he's talking beyond just the captivity to the exile. So it's, it's even more. 
the exile is going to take place as he ordained it. But first, what he does in chapter 44 is he introduces a name. He brings up an individual named Cyrus. You can Google Cyrus. You can go to Wikipedia, and you can find out that even the historians will agree that Cyrus was a real guy. Cyrus the Great, who ruled over the, the Persian Empire, 6th century B.C., one of the most powerful rulers of his time, reigned for about 30 years. His empire at that point became the largest the world had known to date. So think about everything we've known about the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and now the Persian Empire becomes the even greater empire. It's the army of Cyrus that would defeat the Babylonians and set the Jews free. So Isaiah 44, verse 24. Let me read a few verses from Isaiah 44, and this is where Cyrus gets introduced. And I, I want you to see this as we, we move toward this idea of calling. Isaiah 44, 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Whole context, he says, I, I Yahweh, I create all things. We've, we've read that already. We've seen that in numerous places. I, I break, shatter opponents who lie about me. I declare what is to come. He's now showing that, that I declare what is to come because he's now saying Jerusalem will be rebuilt from out of her ruins. So he not only has ordained calamity, but he's ordained rebuilding. The Babylonians would destroy Jerusalem. Yahweh says, when that comes, I will order it to be rebuilt. And the one who will head up the construction project, the one who will at least give the orders to make sure that it's done, is a guy named Cyrus a man who at that point had not been born. In fact, at that point in time, it's not even clear that his parents were walking on the earth yet, which is why the, the critics of the Bible say, well, this couldn't possibly have been written at the same time as the rest of Isaiah, even though all the document proof that we have historically points back to the reality that this is a coherent prophecy from the author Isaiah, and it is indeed speaking to the future, that Cyrus, this one who is not even known, will command the rebuild which leads us into chapter 45. I'm gonna read verses one through seven. Since this is a long reading, and since you've been sitting long, and I know that it's a little cool, stand, why don't you just for this, if you want to, yeah, I'd, I'll encourage you to stand. I'm gonna read seven verses. This gives you a chance to just warm up, move around a second, while we're also meditating on the word of God, because I know that you've all been sitting there hunkered down. Isaiah 45, one through seven, thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. 
For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun, from the west, there's none beside me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. All right, you can be seated. This is breathtaking. This is God not only anointing an evil king to be the one to free his people. Now listen, Cyrus is, is better than some of the other rulers that we look at, Sennacherib and some of the others, but he is still a king who sends armies in to conquer. But the, the point I want you to see is who he's addressing in verses four and five. When God says, I call you by name, though you don't know me, in fact, I, I name you, I equip you, though you do not know me. This is God speaking to the as yet still unborn Cyrus, saying, you don't know me. You don't even exist yet, but I know you, and I name you, and I chose you, called you to go and be the one who would deliver my people. I, Yahweh, do this. You will do this even though you don't know me because I am Yahweh. When Cyrus defeats mighty Babylon, he will arrive on a road prepared by the Lord. He will conquer an army that has already been plundered by the Lord. God will subdue nations before Cyrus, his army ever even gets there, and the gates will be left open for the Persians to conquer because I, Yahweh, says it that way. He says, I, I will do this. Yes, God ordains calamity. But, but this is a, a clear example here of that which is simply on one level bad. You've got the Persian army coming in and conquering another nation and defeating its people, which, which looks bad, and yet it is God accomplishing his purposes. It is Yahweh moving toward the freedom of his people from captivity. It is Yahweh paving the way to say, it's time to rebuild Jerusalem. It's time to raise it again and to rebuild its foundations. And here's the ruler to do it. But it's especially verses four and five that stand out when he says, I, Yahweh, there is no other God. There's no clear evidence that Cyrus became a believer in Yahweh. Cyrus had a habit of, of letting conquered nations go back and worship the God of their nation in order to try to show favor for him. But that doesn't discount the fact that Yahweh actually says, I choose, I choose him, I call him, I anoint Cyrus. I have made this my man for this particular job. It is Yahweh's right as sovereign Lord to choose an instrument for his purposes. Isaiah 43, one says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. I am your creator and I have called you and made you to be my own. I'm not gonna take the time this morning, but I'll encourage you at some point this week is to go back and look at the last half, last third of, of Isaiah 42, where he's going back to Israel as, as servant, and he's talking about Israel's blindness and, and deafness. There's the majestic servant, and now there's this servant who is blind and wandering and lost, 
and, and he gives this vivid description at the end of 42, how he gave them the law, they broke it, they sinned against Yahweh, they deserved to be punished, they were put into captivity in Babylon, and against that backdrop of their rebellion and their blindness and deafness, Yahweh then says, I call you, and I save you, and I make you mine. It is his sovereign work. So much so that he goes on in chapter 43, verse 2, and says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. You should pause on verse 3. If you're one who marks things in, in your Bible, that, that is one of the most explicit self-identifying statements that you find. I, Yahweh, your Elohim, I, the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I am, I am the Lord, your God. I am unique and distinct above all of humanity. That's the holiness of God. He is separate from sin. He is completely unique from everything else in creation. And his rule over it makes him to be the sovereign one. He is the holy one, and yet Yahweh is your savior. Yahweh is your redeemer. Yahweh will pay the ransom. It's a difficult passage because he's now talked about giving Egypt as your ransom. In fact, if you look on verses 4 through 7, he says, because, speaking now to to the, 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 the people that he has chosen, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. There are some rich and difficult theological truths in this section that we should not separate from the preceding in chapter 42. He's not saying to the Jewish people, you are better than the rest. And so therefore, I'm going to do everything I can for you and not for them because he's already made it clear in 42, you are no different than the rest. You are blind and lost, but in my, in my sovereign goodness, I have chosen you and I have called you and I have made you mine. You are sinners just like your neighbors, but God deems to set his love on them and to describe them as precious. And while others may hear of God's power and be urged to repent, many will experience his wrath, even as God calls the people that he loves and redeems. This is who God is. These things about calamity and sovereign establishing his love on a people that he has set apart for his own are, are, are not easy theological truths in scripture. But none of this is easy in, in, in human terms, in, in our trying to, to say, oh, well, this makes perfect sense in our small minds. This has to be under the framework of, I am the Lord. I am sovereign. I am the creator. I am good. The same one who created the universe and established his law and holds every person to account. He is the author of history. 
And so when calamity occurs, he is the one who brings about help and redemption. He's not stepped off his throne and yielded his rule. And he does all of it for his glory, which is the, the component of it that so many people struggle. Sounds like an egomaniac that God would do all of this for his glory. Above all of this, it is to exalt himself because he is everything we need. He must exalt himself because he is the only all soul satisfying being in the universe. He is the only one that can bring true redemption and forgiveness and hope to us. He must be exalted. We need to see his glory and Yahweh calls us to find our contentment and our joy and our peace in him. Now let me end this with with just the, the reality that for some this, this can be troubling, for some of the people that you, who are your neighbors, who are your coworkers, who are people that you deal with, some of this, this stuff about Yahweh who you believe in, this Lord God can be hard to hear. And if any of this is not quite the God you would expect or design, if he seems somewhat too self-centered to you, then look at how he answers. Isaiah 45, verse nine. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. It, it's absurd. And yet God's saying, does the, does the pot at some point say to the potter, I don't like the way you've done me up. I don't like the lack of handles. I don't like the design. Why are you doing this? Who gives you this right? And, and, and it, it's absurd, but it's the picture that he's giving to say, I have made all this. I have created you. I've set you in the midst of this creation. Does the pot question the potter and argue over its purpose? Not only does he, he put a, a do not, if you will, don't, don't argue back. He's the creator, but then look at how he, gets near the end of this argument and look at how he starts to bring it to a close. Chapter 45, Isaiah 45, verses 20 to 22. And let me just read these last passage. There's, there's um, eight, uh, seven, no, I guess it's eight. Eight imperatives in this section. It, it is just full of commands. Assemble yourselves, come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. A couple more imperatives. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me, another command, and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. For all that Yahweh has declared now about creation and calamity and calling, he's essentially now said, you all come here, come in close, come in the courtroom. I wanna to speak to you. I, I, and it's not just an, an asking, it is a commanding. Y'all come step into my presence. Go ahead and make your case. Show me your design for God. Is it that wooden idol there? Is it that, that, that whatever that is, that lust of your eyes? Does it tell you about the things that are to come? Does it, does it tell you why you're here, what your purpose is? Does it do anything like me because there is none like me? I alone am God. 
What say you? What say the people you encounter? Are you trying to make God fit your design? Have you sort of outthought and outsmarted his Bible? Well, scripture says this, but it's really kind of out of date. Do you want the Holy One to embrace your definitions of sin and righteousness? This, this is what God should do. His law may have been applicable then, but it's sort of untenable today, and it needs, it needs a point two or point three or whatever it is. Are, are you prepared to tell God, this is how far you rule my life? This is the boundary that I give to you? Now listen, you, you may say no to all of those questions, but the culture around you, the people who are your neighbors are just like the neighbors of the Jews. And they are saying yes to all those questions. That's your God. That's how you define him. That, that's, that's what you say about him. We are surrounded by neighbors who believe that the God of the Bible must be updated for the times and that he needs to be a more unjudging, more inclusive, more loving deity or else his poll numbers are gonna drop even further. You see that 80% number and how it's going down every year? You keep preaching this kind of God and of course those numbers are gonna go down. He needs to be more aware of the culture, less law giving. He is Yahweh. And, and we have to be able to go back to passages of scripture like this and read this clearly and, 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 and read it when it says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I am the creator, there is no other. I am the sovereign over history and there is none like me. I am the savior and there is no other savior. There is, there is only one savior and we know that is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ said there is only one way to the Father, through, to God the Father, and that is through him. That is by trusting in Jesus Christ as savior. And we must be unashamed and unafraid to hold fast to that truth in the midst of a culture that says, I need him to be a little more flexible than that. No, he is the Lord. He is Yahweh. Let's pray. Lord God, that we would call on your name. Ah, what, a, what an undeserved privilege that is. Lord, we are, we are no different than the Jewish people, the ones described in chapter 42 as blind and deaf. Lord, we come from that same place, that same lostness. We, we did not earn our way into your presence. We did not earn your righteousness or your salvation. You and your sovereign grace have acted to save a people for yourself. And that, that I pray, Lord, humbles us as a people before you, causes us to worship you with, with adoration and praise, but also empowers us by your spirit to speak to a world around us that wants to redefine you, that wants to make you small, Lord, may, may the way we live, may the way we worship, may how we work, may how we do marriage, how we do parenting, how we do business, how we spend money, may it proclaim a big God, a great and awesome creator, sovereign, ruling God to whom we yield all quarters of our lives. Lord, help us as a body of believers 
to love you, Yahweh, a sovereign ruler, and to desire to bow before you every portion of our lives. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone listening to this this morning who is wanting you to somehow fit their mold, adjust to their sin, fit their worldview, I pray that today would be the day when you would firmly and yet graciously open their eyes to see that you alone are the sovereign God and you alone are the Savior. And it is only by trusting in your son Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection that there is life and forgiveness. You who extends salvation to the ends of the earth, who proclaims this gospel to all of the nations before the end comes. You who appeals to sinners to turn and believe. Thank you. Thank you though that there is one clear way of salvation and that it has been provided through Jesus Christ whose death we now remember and whose resurrection we celebrate. It's in his name we pray, amen.